This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, November 7th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. College basketball season arrives today with both the Razorback men and Razorback women opening their seasons tonight. The women face Arkansas Pine Bluff on the road. The men host North Dakota State in Bud Walton Arena. Later this hour, we'll learn more about a new project in Eureka Springs. Ozarks at Largest Jacqueline Froelich gives us details about gathering oral history in Eureka Springs. Before that, the 24th annual Arkansas poll was released late last week. University of Arkansas-led poll gives a snapshot of what issues are most important to residents and likely voters. Political science professor Janine Perry, who oversees the poll, visited the Karen Taha News studio recently to explain some of this year's results with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. All right. So, Janine, uh, the 2022 poll came out today. Uh, Can you tell me just a little bit about uh, some of the main key factors that you saw, some of the results Uh that you saw that stood out to you this year? I would say most things were pretty consistent, which is dull but reassuring when you're in the polling business. But the main thing actually has to do with policy focus uh, that we included this year, which in light of the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, you know, pushing policy, um, really the full responsibility for for regulation of abortion or no regulation of abortion or um, somewhere in the middle, back to the states, we thought it might be interesting to probe that a little bit since, you know, most of your listeners will know that Arkansas was one of the states uh, that with the Dobbs decision went to an almost total prohibition on legal abortion. And I knew from previous research nationally um, and really over time, including in Arkansas, that that probably wasn't an accurate representation of what people really want. Almost everyone in the country is has a much more nuanced view of that. So we did a, a focus on that this year, and we just asked about specific circumstances. And you just think about even Governor Hutchinson. There are a few people with stronger and decades of you know pro-life quote unquote credentials as as Asa Hutchinson, but even he I think was a little surprised to learn that we don't have the standard kind of rape and incest exemptions in our policy. So I thought we should test some of those, and what we found is very strong support, not just a support, but really 70 plus percent of our Kansans saying, if the life of the pregnant person is at stake, you know, then no, we don't think it should be prohibited. We think it should be legal. If the physical health, right, of that person is at stake, we think it should be legal. You know, fetal abnormality, strong risk of. Um, Uh, trouble with a live birth, then it should be legal. Uh, And then rape and incest exemptions too. So it's just another way of looking at how all these policies that the state legislature has pursued vigorously over the last decade aren't reflective of what the average Arkansan wants. Yeah. And is this the first time that you've asked that question in in the poll before? We have asked, yeah, yeah, we've asked the abortion regulation question so many different ways. But this is the first time we've asked this particular battery and then presented it with some nationally comparable data from other um, reputable national polls. But we, you know, we still ask broad questions too. Like in general, do you think it should be illegal or legal or does it depend? And we got one of our lowest, um, it is our lowest measure yet. So starting in 2017, we started asking, do you think abortion should be legal under any circumstances, uh, legal under certain circumstances or illegal basically in all circumstances? The last of those, you know, illegal in all circumstances, which is what Arkansas policy is 
essentially mm-hmm. is right now, is only 14, 14% of, of this uh, sample. You know, about 60, 60% say it depends, uh, which is, you know, it's varied over time uh, between 50 and 60 and then 21%, so that jumped up as well, just right. saying, you know, legal. So I think that's a, a lot of the environment that we're in. But if we're going to live in a republic, and uh, I guess we're just going to have these elections, right, which are certainly um, what we do, right, but they're pretty blunt instruments, mm-hmm. here's an opportunity to learn a little bit more about what people might really want. So we'll see. Yeah, and I guess in asking this, do you think that people maybe had a more of a nuanced or a better understanding of what our laws around abortion are, like after the Supreme Court case had come down? Yes, yeah. that is a terrific question. Because for so long, um, I've asked things like, are you generally pro-life or are you pro-choice? Or as you can see here, from the very beginning, most years, going back to 1999, we've asked, you know, would you favor laws that make it more difficult to get an abortion, less or no change? And you know, for years I thought, do people really know what the law is? Yeah. Unless you've sought an abortion or someone you know and care about, you know, has in recent years, odds are you just have no idea. I guess the court case facilitated greater knowledge. I, th- I think there's a lot of support for your hypothesis there. Right. Mm-hmm. And then so moving on to kind of the next big headline that, that came out of the report was the economy. And so people are anxious about the, the economy, which is not a new thing. Newsflash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People feel economically anxious. Yes. <laughs> but it did tick up from last year. So, you know, dig into that a little bit. Why, why that uptick, I guess? I think it's real, mm-hmm. right? In yeah. that Arkansans are like other Americans. They're experiencing inflation, except that Arkansans, unlike other Americans, are on the whole poorer. Yeah. So inflation is harder on um, folks in this state. In addition to that, it's an election year, and that's been a big election theme, you know, so Republicans on the offense, right, at the midterm against a Democratic administration, they would like to hold accountable for inflation, and Democrats on the defense. So, of course, it's going to be top of mind in a very nationalized, polarized, right, uh, election environment. We got, at least in the last decade and a half, almost two decades, the lowest percentage of respondents saying to, do you feel Arkansas is headed in the right or wrong direction? We only got 55% of the overall sample saying that Arkansas was headed in the right direction. Usually that kind of tracks with economic news, and I think that's telling as well. So, And talking about doing this in an election year, how do those responses change, you know, maybe from this year to a non-election year like 2021? Usually you can see the media's role in setting the agenda. Mm-hmm. And by media, I would include campaign communication, yeah. right? So so all the ads that a lot of the people in our older sample of likely voters are viewing is kind of telling them what to think about. Something we've done for a long time that I'm proud of, it was sort of an accident, but I'm, I'm glad that it worked out this way. Usually what folks do, pollsters in that case, is they come up with five or six things that seem important to them or they believe are important to people and then people are expected to choose. But to me, that's always felt like kind of an echo chamber, right? If you give me four or five things to choose, 
what if those aren't the four or five things, right, that right. I really was thinking yeah. about? Um, so what we do is in odd-numbered years, so non-election years, we ask people and then we t- just open-ended. And then we record the patterns and then we try to make categories out of that. And then in even-numbered years, we take the top six from the previous year. So that that just helps me feel like it's a little less artificial. It's a little less determined by the conversation of elites in the sense that we let our respondents be in the driver's seat the previous year. Yeah. And so speaking of it being an election year, one of the things that you asked about were some of the ballot measures that are that people are going to be voting on now. And can you just break down kind of what people said about that and what the feelings were there? <laughs> well, first of all, <laughs> I really don't like to pull on the ballot measures. Yeah. I skipped uh, three this year because it was just really hard to know what people would perceive when they actually are staring at the ballot. But still, they're top of mind, you know, so we thought we would try it. The results for Referred Amendment 1 and Referred Amendment 2, which unlike many recent election years, as these proposals coming to us from the legislature, have actually had some traction, right? They've got some groups for them and against them. And, you know, there's information and perspectives circulating on social media. So they are, as far as we can tell, given our sample and given the way we ask the questions, they're just in dead heats. So it, I, I don't know what to expect from those, but I appreciate the conversation that's happening yeah. out there because they're pretty significant changes. So one, of course, I guess I should remind people is the, should the legislature be able to call itself into special mm-hmm. session and not just rely on the governor? And then two is the one people may have heard of where the legislature has proposed that we lift the passage threshold essentially, right, for those citizen initiated right. acts. My gut, for whatever that's worth, mm-hmm. is that they probably eventually go down because there's more activity than usual. And it feels like opponents have introduced enough doubt that may be enough, you know, to, to sink them. I feel a little more confident about the marijuana measure where we actually are outside the margin of error there, pretty well outside the margin of error, with only about 40 percent of respondents supporting it and almost 60 percent opposing it. Uh, and again, that's just our subsample of very likely voters. And we take out the people who said they, they don't know or they refuse to respond. That right. usually improves our accuracy. You know, there was some earlier polling from, um, you know, a media organization and, you know, total respect uh, for what it is that, that they do and its, its role in the conversation. But those are conducted overnight by text. So I think you can pretty safely presume those are younger respondents. And I checked that today. I went into, you know, what we call the cross tabulations. As age goes up, does support for this measure, adult recreational marijuana use, go down? And it's just like one of those perfect lines. My respondents on the whole are older, but voters on the whole are older. Uh, And then we shouldn't overlook that their polling right happened earlier in October before the left seemed to start mobilizing against this particular measure. And boy, if, if anything in this environment, if the left and the right are united (laughs) an alliance against a measure uh it's probably going to make it an an uphill struggle despite you know all the the money and the advertising uh, that we've all been exposed to so another thing that stood out to me was people's attitudes around uh, women in politics uh, female politicians in arkansas kind of getting uh better approval ratings than some of their male counterparts can you dig into that a little bit yeah this is something I've worked on for a long time uh, it's just an interest of mine I'm a gender and politics person and it's gradual but it is something that you see you know if you compare 
the people who agree who agreed a decade ago was something like female politicians often let their emotions influence their political decisions. You see an ever so slight but outside the margin of error decrease in the portion of people who say yes to that. So it, it almost approached a third in 2011, and you know now it's down to a, a quarter. So yeah. I've just been kind of interested in watching that over time. But of course, I'm especially interested because it looks like we're about to get our first female governor and executive positions have been particularly difficult for women to achieve, not just in Arkansas, not just in the nation, but worldwide. There's something, I guess, especially masculine about executive leadership. And so that's just been really a a hard nut to crack for female politicians. So I just was interested in that. And I have a lot more analysis that I want to conduct. I I can report back if you like. Yeah. Well, it is interesting because, you know, the face of likely the face of the Republican Party in Arkansas is going to be mm-hmm. female, be Sarah Huckabee Sanders and uh, Leslie Rutledge, yeah. which is We've interesting. These, yeah. mm-hmm, these high-profile women um, carrying the banner for, for the Republican Party. And I can tell you from past research that the folks most likely to hold what are you know, just objectively sexist attitudes mm-hmm. about women's qualifications to serve in public life are usually Republican men. But now that their party's standard bearer, mm-hmm. uh, bearers, right, among them, the highest profile people are women, that's actually something I'm interested in is, well, does that change your point of view? And we do know in like a, a big picture way for all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds that seeing female leadership or just representation, not just women, you know, people of color, people from different linguistic or religious backgrounds, that it actually does change people's attitudes about what a leader looks like. Um, we just didn't realize we had those pre-existing dispositions before. So it's important, I think, but also the research shows for everyone to see all kinds of female leadership. So we'll see in the future, right, whether or not these things change two or four years down the road, I guess. Can you talk just a little bit about compiling this year's poll? You know, how it how it was different than, than previous years and, and maybe, I don't mm-hmm. know if there were any difficulties or any things that came up, <laughs> <laughs> more difficulties than years past. Yeah, I had a wonderful um, intern working with me this year and um, we were talking about the, the, the difficulties. So it was less difficult because Olive <laughs> uh, was helping me make <laughs> graphics and look things up. But um, the call center we use was purchased um, from a a reputable organization, but that was happening while we were in progress. So it's like, well, where are the call centers and who, you know, who am I talking to? They, They worked very hard to keep it seamless. But in addition to that, they just had a really hard time getting respondents, particularly by cell. And it's it's really important that we do responses by cell because otherwise our average age, you know, probably would have been 82. We're going to do some analysis about uh, is it the sample, you know, that they purchased or is it uh, is it just a response rate issue? And that's why other organizations are working with text responses or working with, of course, online platforms, all things that um, have been in operation with pretty good success in in other states. The problem is that it's like, you know, Hal Holbrook or probably paraphrasing Mark Twain, you know, said, when the world ends, you want to be in Arkansas because everything here happens 20 years later. (laughs) So we're not a super dynamic state in terms of population. We don't have, you know, major urban areas. Uh, So the older techniques actually seem to be getting, you know, a little bit better um, 
sample, I think, than some of those newer techniques. But that will all eventually shift. And uh, so we have to kind of examine all of that. And for you, why is this important? Like, why keep doing it? Why does it, why does it matter to you? I do think the advantage of the University of Arkansas, flagship public university, doing this and doing it as long as we have, it's one of the oldest totally public state polls in the country, is that elections are blunt instruments. And especially as states and local governments kind of recede from most people's view, you know, we're focused entirely on national things. I think it's really important that the people we elect hear from us in a way in addition to those elections. So few of us participate at this level. And then when we do, it's kind of unclear what signals we're sending. Or we're sending, right, red signals or blue signals. And that's just not who most of us are when you start pressing us on the details of public policy. So I think this can inform lawmakers at all levels about the nuance that's always been part of American public life and maybe is is fading a little bit from view right now. Yeah, That's our intent, that people, citizens will use it, reporters will use it, and that policymakers uh, will use it to try to engage in policy um, that reflects what most of the people want. Yeah. It's, it's been a good ride. I think next year's my last one. So uh, we'll, I don't know if anybody will take it over or not, but it has been a really interesting experience. Yeah. So thanks for being, thanks for uh, sharing that interest with me. Well, thank you, Janine, for, for talking to me and sharing all of this hard work. We yeah. appreciate it. Sure. That was U of A political science professor Janine Perry speaking with reporter Daniel Carruth. Tomorrow is Election Day, and tomorrow night, after our evening edition of Ozarks at Large, we'll bring you live coverage of the 2022 midterm elections from NPR. We'll have updates from across the country as voters determine which party will control Congress. We'll also have updates from across the state as a new governor and new lieutenant governor are chosen and voters decide the electoral fates of four statewide ballot issues, including marijuana, special legislative sessions, and more. Election coverage from NPR and KUAF begins at 8 tomorrow night on 91.3. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. KUAF is partnering with Eureka Springs CAPC to give away tickets to the Eureka Springs 75th Annual Original Folk Festival. Two pairs of tickets for the Barefoot Ball Thursday, November 10th, and two pairs for Shiny Ribs Friday, November 11th. Winners announced during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large Tuesday, November 8th. KUAF.com for entries and information. This is Ozarks at Large. Eureka Springs Carnegie Public Library has begun an oral history project. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. Carnegie Public Library's Eureka Springs Oral History Project aims to collect stories from native Eurekans, longtime Eurekans, migrant Eurekans, and even new Eurekans. The quaint Ozark Mountain Village, founded in 1979 as a historic tourist destination and home to several thousand residents, Year-round, over a million visitors flock to the town to enjoy cold water spring reservations, beautiful Victorian and Romanesque architecture, fine arts and crafts, fine cuisine and local culture. Library director April Griffith says patrons and residents routinely approach library staff with root stories and photos to share. And it was multiple people, different times. We kept hearing this. 
Griffith says her interest in Eureka Springs history was sparked after she documented the historic Ozark Mountain Folk Fair, staged in a forest north of town in the spring of 1973. An estimated 30,000 people showed up to camp out in the woods and enjoy live rock, blues, bluegrass, gospel, country, and folk music. Some stayed settling in Eureka. Now, although predominantly white, Eureka had a historic African-American community residing in the center of town, and today a rising Hispanic population, according to census records. Seeing these people who are incredible, who've been a part of the community for so long, um, and we're losing them, you know, unfortunately, people are getting older and some of them are passing away, and it's, you sort of watch history leaving The library's special collections contain local and county history books, journal articles, and newspaper files. And the the history books that have been written that are incredible really only cover up, I think, to the maybe 1960s, early 1960s, and then that history stops. The Eureka Springs Oral History Project aims to fill that gap. The library was awarded a $10,000 National Endowment for the Humanities American Rescue Plan grant to initiate the process. Library staff purchased oral history resources and audio recording hardware and software, as well as a scanner to capture photographs, letters, and documents. Cass Shellhorn, assistant librarian, serves as oral history project manager. She has degrees in history, library science, and archival management. Yeah, so we are all balancing work at the circulation desk and regular library duties. Uh, And so we have created a makeshift sound studio and we are recording stories twice a week on Thursdays and Saturdays at the library here uh, at the main library. Shellhorn says the project employs oral history best practices, recording a mix of long and short-form interviews. We're using a methodology uh, called Our Story Bridge, which originated out of uh, the Adirondacks. And uh, their project was the uh, Adirondack community capturing stories of who we are. And they created this, uh, which is now a nonprofit that helps other libraries. We are the 16th library to partner with our story bridge. And their methodology is specifically created to uh, record, collect, organize, and make accessible three to five minute stories from community members about the community uh, for all. The grant project spanned six months starting up earlier this year, allowing time for Shellhorn to learn oral history recording methods and technology. She also researched Eureka Springs' history and recorded a dozen long-form interviews. Staff will continue to record both short and long-form oral histories into the near future, she says. Recordings are digitally archived and sorted by categories such as industry, labor, tourism, arts and crafts, and culture, including Eureka's significant LGBTQ plus population, first established 40 years ago. Again, April Griffith. We want to hear from everyone. We think that's that's the best way to move forward to get a holistic picture of our town and who lives in our community and who's shaping the way our town grows and evolves throughout the years. The library publicly unveiled the Eureka Springs Oral History Project in mid-October, where residents could ask questions and book oral history interviews with staff. 
Griffiths says volunteers are providing production support. Spanish-speaking community members, including Laura Cabrera and Carmen Rose, are assisting with translation for print and digital content. And Eurizia Tapia, a volunteer from the local high school, is assisting with oral history interviews conducted in Spanish. One of the great reasons, or one of the, the huge benefits of partnering with our StoryBridge um, is they have a network of volunteers that is going to help us eventually create a teacher's guide so that this resource is also going to be um, available for local schools. If, if when they're doing history projects and want to know about the history of our town, this is going to be a way to approach it and use this resource uh, as an active educational tool. Griffith says the oral history archive is being created for the Eureka Springs community. Former residents, Arkansans, tourists, researchers, school students, and historians. Oral history recordings will be made available to the public free of charge for listening or download. And the first full-length podcast is now posted on myeurekastory.org. Individuals can schedule oral history recording sessions online or by contacting library staff. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This week, we're listening again to a visit with Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center that first aired this past March. What we have experienced, the kind of growth we have experienced, is is somewhat healthy. Uh, we measure uh, our progress by what we can do for those people who don't have enough. And in Arkansas, we're not doing enough for those kinds of people. That is the voice of J. Bill Becker. More about him in just a second. I will tell you that with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Welcome. Hello, Kyle. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Okay. Uh, J. Bill Becker is not one of those names who I think would be considered a household name. In no, not at all. Um, you know, most of the people that I talk to uh, when I was working on this for this week, I mentioned his name and they had no idea who he was. Isn't That isn't to say he was not influential in Arkansas politics. No, he was kind of, you know, you would say behind the scenes, but he really wasn't. I looked and he was in the news scores maybe hundreds of times uh, during his tenure as president of the AFL-CIO. Uh, from, gosh, long time, 1966 to, no, 64 to 96. Wow. Yeah, more than three decades. And it was when the AFL, which was, help me here, the American, American Federation of Labor, right. merged with the uh, CIO, which was the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Yes. Yeah. People don't realize they, they used to be separate, yeah. and then in the '60s they they merged, combined, and he was the first Arkansas president of the combined organizations, and he he uh, really made a name for not only himself but for labor in Arkansas, which has never been a huge factor because it's a, a right to work state. Right now. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of the things that happened in the 60s with labor. But this this next cut is just kind of him talking about how poor this state was. Right. And, and he was big on statistics. He knew them. He knew his job. He knew the numbers. And, and he could rattle them off. 
If you look at our statistical measures, uh, Arkansas wages are below Mississippi, the lowest in the nation. Our per capita income is the second lowest in the nation. Our wages are 80 cents an hour below the national average. I would say generally the quality of life of our people has been expanded, but we have to be reminded, I think, all the time that we still have in Arkansas 47% of our families who are living in poverty. And uh, we're not touching enough people, people who really need help. I think as our economy grows, the labor force uh, in Arkansas will be responsive to that growth and so will the labor movement. I think we've had a relatively good success. Uh, workers have organized into unions uh, as industry has come into Arkansas and I think we are uh, a partner uh, in this kind of progress. 47% of Arkansas households in poverty. Yes. That wow. was, yeah. And that was in 1969 he was talking there. Yeah. So this th that was even before the 1970s recession right. so it gets worse wow. yeah especially for the, the the minimum wage worker the 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 laborers that would be union members that that he stood for very strongly very strongly and yeah. and, and you talked to to our partner Roby Brock with talk business and politics about Mr. Becker right and and he uh well this is what he said. So J. Bill Becker comes into uh, the Arkansas AFL-CIO to lead that movement really as it's, it's, it's peaking post-World War II in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, labor had its biggest gains. Uh, obviously, the economy was cooking pretty good um, after the war. Um, so, I mean, he gets to lead the organization through, you know, those early decades of, you know, really fantastic growth and um, and really to where Arkansas was at its peak in terms of the labor movement. Again, it still was not, you know, a majority of the workers in the state, but it, it was substantial and they had a lot of political influence uh, in large part due to the fact that, you know, the labor union nationally was tied to uh, Democrats out of Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal, and, uh, and there still were vestiges of all of that across the state of Arkansas politically. So the AFL-CIO, that was an important endorsement uh, for people to get in a Democratic primary. And you never saw, never saw a piece of political um, pamphlet or a sign that didn't have a union label on it. That was tantamount to losing a Democratic primary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Patronize labor uh, and use one of the labor shops for all your printed material. That's Roby Brock talking about J. Bill Becker, who is our subject of a Prior Center profile this week. Um, he brought up endorsements. Right, which what? used to matter. I mean— it, it did used to be a pretty big deal, yeah. even though, you know, the percentage—there might have been 100,000, though, right. uh, in this state, which at the time, what, 2 million— uh, Probably. I well, mean, and they, they weren't even voters. Right. So when you have 100,000 strong, that's— that's substantial. And making an endorsement of, of a candidate, especially a gubernatorial candidate, was a big deal. So this next clip sort of shows uh, 
kind of behind the scenes, you open the curtain to the process, and there was a process to uh, the union uh, endorsing a candidate. It, 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 it Becker was, Becker would make a recommendation, but it was the entire body. Body. They would have a convention every year, and when it was an election year, they would do that. So in this case, in this interview, Becker is actually in the governor's conference room uh, when they pulled him aside. The reporters pulled him aside, and it was Governor David Pryor at the time, and he was running for reelection. And Becker was sort of weighing uh, whether he should recommend the uh, his reelection to the body. Just exactly how, in your view, does he stand with organized labor? Well, with some he stands very good, and with some he stands very bad with organized labor. How does he stand with you? How does he stand with uh, with me? Uh, I'm going to wait until all the candidates are filed and. He, and he comes to our convention and we discuss with him some issues. And uh, we have a committee who will do the interviewing, and then a decision will be made for an, anyone to receive an endorsement. It takes a two-thirds vote of our convention. Well, you're indicating that his labor support has eroded somewhat. Is that erosion significant? I think it can be safely said that his labor support has eroded some. And just to show how much attention, you know, it can <laughs> be argued how much actual influence it had, but how much attention uh, endorsements would get. Well, I mean, it made news. Yeah, exactly. It did, and the newspapers would cover the convention extensively. Television would cover the conventions because once they made votes on issues, but especially endorsements, uh, it would be worthy of news stories. And here is just a portion of a KETV report from uh, Judy Pryor. Some of the questions asked the governor today concern collective bargaining for public employees, questions on unemployment insurance, and the prison system and the construction of some buildings there. There are around 100,000 members of the AFL-CIO in the state of Arkansas. The announcement of just what candidates they will endorse should be made sometime tomorrow afternoon. This is Judy Pryor reporting. That's from KATV's Judy Pryor. It's one of the archives that we're using uh, this week from the Pryor Center um, for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. All right. There are certain things, I think, depending on your generation, you just, you probably intellectually know they haven't always been there, but it's always been a part of your life or part of the conversation around your life. Minimum wage being one of those for me. Oh, before 1968, there was no minimum wage in Arkansas. Right. You you could be paid anything. You could be be paid <laughs> or, yeah, 75 cents an hour. Yeah. Or in that case, it could have been 35 cents an hour and you're relying on tips or right. something along those lines. And you're right. There was no law. And one of Becker's biggest accomplishments in his time as president uh, was to push for legislation uh, in Arkansas for a minimum wage, and in 1968, uh, that happened. And he was uh, at the signing ceremony. Um, he was on hand when Governor Winthrop Rockefeller signed the bill into law. And he actually said that the passage of this law indicated that labor had reached its maturity in Arkansas. So he talked to reporters right after the signing. Mr. Becker, how do you feel that the increase in the minimum wage will affect the economy of the state? Well, I think it'll be a, a monumental factor in our social and economic progress. 
and will help spread the abundance of our wealth uh, to some forgotten people who have needed it for a long, long time. Some observers feel that the increase in the minimum wage will cause a substantial rise in prices. How do you feel about this? Well, you know, the public might be concerned about this, except we've had 30 years of experience under federal minimum wage legislation. And uh, these profits of disaster have said not only this, but that it would curtail employment opportunities. It just hasn't happened. The Wall Street Journal, as a matter of fact, did a study on this after the last increase in the minimum wage. And they found uh, that the employment and price structure showed little overall effect as a result of the minimum wage. Uh, I wish there were some concern expressed for the million dollars in Arkansas that is lost by some seven, 8,000 people uh, from chiseling uh, under the wage hour law. Then you feel that the economic reaction should be no different than in the past? No, it's going to help the economy by uh, pumping in some badly needed purchasing power. And uh, when you charge increased prices, I think you're just whipping the wrong mule. There are other factors involved in price increases. All right, let's go back a little bit to something we talked about uh, for a bit last week, and that was the Constitutional Convention in Arkansas in 1968. It turns out that the, the document that built was rejected by voters, so it, it didn't come into fruition. But J. Bill Becker was weighing in on it. Well, even if it were left out, we'd have a problem, uh, as we want it to be left out. Because of the mistakes they've made on interest rates, they've removed the ceiling entirely on interest rates. The loan sharks will have a field day in Arkansas. They're allowing the cities, who are for city sales and payroll tax, to pass those taxes without any guidelines. Uh, they, are, they have done several things like that. They're diluting the authority of the people on initiative and referendum. And these are major errors that need to be corrected before we even consider supporting any new document. Okay, so we've got the minimum wage passed. <laughs> we've got the uh, new constitution rejected. Right. So now we're moving into the 70s and we're talking recession. Gas prices were astronomical for yeah. considered in the contemporary times and and jobless numbers were at all-time highs in Arkansas. Well, maybe not all-time highs because of the Depression, but at, you know, highs for the period. Right. And now what we're, what we're moving into is 1974 when inflation was higher than it had been uh, post-World War II in the 40s. So, um, of course, Becker is concerned about uh, the workers who are making this minimum wage or making a certain wage that may not keep up with inflation. Uh, and I'm not surprised. It's not unusual uh, because what we have is unchecked inflation. Uh, last year, the rate was 11.1%, which means, of course, that the purchasing power of these employees uh, is down drastically, and they're already at the bottom end of the economic uh, ladder. Uh, that's basically the problem. It's compounded by the fact, however, that there's no vehicle by way of a law, like a collective bargaining law, that would let them, uh, in an orderly way, present their demands and solve uh, uh, their problems and disputes. What was the inflation rate in 1974? <laughs> it was 12.4%. Now, right now, inflation is in the news mm -hmm. because it's just over 4%. Yeah. So let's talk three times higher than it is now. Mm. And uh, it was dismal. I mean, the, the fiscal outlook was, in a word, dismal. Um, 
So he uh, was asked by a reporter about what he saw in the year coming up. He was still worried about inflation. He was still worried about the workers keeping up. But the word strike came up. Well, the next year ahead, uh, I suppose, means uh, doing what we can to, to help fight inflation. Uh, at the same time, uh, catching up on, on all of the earning power that we've lost. Uh, and I suppose the year ahead will be the year of collective bargaining and perhaps of strikes, although, although we hope not. We hope that the Ford administration will do something about controlling inflation. It's the number one problem of working people, and of course, as the president has said, the number one public enemy, inflation. Talking about J. Bill Becker, uh, who was a long time president of the Arkansas AFL-CIO for, for, for 30, more than 30 years. So he had relationships with a lot of governors, including the Bill Clinton, famous. Right. And he was not always um, seeing eye to eye with him. I mean, they would butt heads, and it was well covered. It was well known. And um, sometimes he would get the endorsement of labor sometimes he wouldn't but something came up um well i was talking to his son who i went to high school with mm -hmm. on the phone the other day and he he told him that uh one of his i guess you could call it a downfall or a a blemish uh for him at least in arkansas uh, not for everyone, and unless you're a Bill Clinton fan, but during the 92 campaign. Um, this is Clinton's presidential campaign. Yes. Uh, well, I'll tell you what he had to say, and it was in a New York Times uh, interview. I'm quoting, Bill Clinton is mainly the friend of big business. Labor has backed him in some of the past, true, but only because he's been the lesser of two evils in a right-to-work state in the Deep South. Then he even added, every time he's claimed to be our friend, we've ended up with a knife in the back. That's pretty strong stuff. He also went on CNN and talked about it. Uh, so that didn't necessarily go over too well in Arkansas. And when I talked to his son, um, he said his father was convinced that it cost him his final run for president of the AFL-CIO in, in 1996. Uh, he lost the election to uh, Alan Hughes. And so I asked Roby Brock about his legacy. Yeah, I think that Bill Becker was really um, a fighting man for fighting for the, the little guy and the Arkansas worker. His reputation was not as a compromiser, not as a back-slapping good old boy with the you know, political system. He, he was an aggressive supporter of the labor movement, and he fought very hard for um, you know, the, the gains that they made and, and up at the legislature, the things that they would fight for. He, he didn't mind punching you in the mouth in the heat of a battle. That was his tactic, was to you know, kind of knock you backwards and make you deal with him versus you know, finding a way to kind of you know, work quietly behind the scenes. He definitely was a was a fighter in that respect. So when you think about um, what he said about Bill Clinton in the New York Times interview and on CNN, he probably lost a lot of support from Arkansas Democrats who saw Bill Clinton as a flag bearer. And that was probably almost all of them. Yeah. 
Uh, so it really it really hurt him. And uh, so he lost the election. He had had a heck of a run of more than 30 years. Uh, and so he was he was celebrated. Mm-hmm. He was um, by the union, and they, they had a, a huge retirement dinner for him in August of 97, and he died that same year in December. And at the time of his death, he was the longest-serving AFL-CIO president in the country. Oh, I can imagine. It was a legacy. Yeah. And that's exactly uh, what I'd ask Roby Brock about, but let's go ahead if – if we may, yes, yes, and let uh, J. Bill Becker have the last word. We like to feel that uh, we are a part of this society, although we fully recognize that there are certain elements in our society who who disagree and would like to see us go away and uh, never be heard from again. But that's not a fact in our industrial democracy. In a free enterprise society, labor's, uh, labor does have a right to exist, and so do unions. But I think the workforce in, in our state is as good or better, has greater quality than anywhere in the country. Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Thank you very much. It was great. I'll see you next week. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 Arts Series presents Delfeo Marsalis and the Uptown Jazz Orchestra, Sunday, November 20th at 7 p.m. A member of the Marsalis family of musicians, Delfeo is an acclaimed trombonist who leads the brass-heavy Uptown Jazz Orchestra in a concert paying tribute to the sounds of New Orleans. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. Arkansas SHIP, the Arkansas Senior Health Insurance Information Program, announces open enrollment now through December 7th. Arkansas SHIP offers free, confidential, unbiased, and educational advice for those needing to find the best Medicare Part D drug plan for 2023. For more, 1-800-224-6330. Tomorrow is Election Day, and on Ozarks at Large, we have a natural election podcast-inspired quiz. In Arkansas, what four reasons can be given for legitimately being able to file an absentee ballot? Questions about elections past and present on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7, and by listening to the Ozarks at Large podcast and an Election Day edition of Natural Election, available tomorrow. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Sawyer Floyd Jones was born in Mariana, July 21, 1917. The Lee County native didn't achieve the name recognition of some of his colleagues, such as Charlie Patton and Helen Wolf, but Jones was a highly regarded sideman on bass and guitar and a stalwart of the classic era of Maxwell Street and Chicago blues. After a sojourn in Mississippi, Floyd Jones went north to Chicago, Illinois in 1945, joining the Great Migration to take advantage of World War II era industrialization. Floyd Jones teamed with his cousin Moody Jones from Earl in Crittenden County and harmonica player Snooky Pryor, busking along the city's Maxwell Street. The area had become known as the marketplace and the hub of the near west side of Chicago's Jewish and later black population, as well as the proving ground of the city's blues music scene of the mid 20th century. Whoa, 
me ride, let the fool ride. Though while electrified blues is often termed Chicago-style blues, progenitor Helen Wolf contends it was already being played in the Arkansas Delta before he went north. Wolf called it the West Memphis style. As Little Rock native Jim Dickinson later recalled, we played Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf and what I thought then was Chicago music, which was in reality all Mid-South music. In 1948, Floyd Jones sang lead on Sunnyland Slim's Hard Times. Pianist Sunnyland Slim later went on to fame playing with Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and others. The next year, Floyd Jones made his own recording debut on the Marvel label with Moody Jones and Snooky Pryor. The song Stockyard Blues described Jones's Chicago life. Floyd Jones also recorded for Chess, VJ, and JOB Records, all of Chicago. Heard here is On the Road Again, Jones's 1953 follow-up to his 1951 song, Dark Road, which opened the episode, both with Moody Jones on bass. In 1968, rock band Canned Heat reworked On the Road Again for its second album, Boogie with Canned Heat. Coincidentally, Sunnyland Slim also played on Boogie with Canned Heat. Jones's song, On the Road Again, was itself a reworking of Tommy Jones's big road blues from the late 1920s. Like his cousin Moody Jones, Floyd Jones did his own stints as a sideman, playing guitar and especially later in his career bass. Floyd Jones recorded with Little Walter, Big Walter Horton, Johnny Shines, among other blues luminaries, including early recordings of Charlie Musselwhite, who played with Horton, and in the mid-1960s was billed as Memphis Charlie Musselwhite. Never could get nothing clucking, you know. I mean, I just work locally, made a buck, you know, but not what I think I should have made at the time. A little later on, the fellas was catching, you know. They make one fair number and they gone. But I didn't make it. Floyd Jones, heard here on bass with Johnny Shines, continued his lifetime of music through the 1970s and 1980s, becoming known to blues scholars as a key player in and an elder statesman of the Chicago scene's classic period, albeit one who is often off to the side. Lee County bluesman Floyd Jones died in his adopted hometown of Chicago, Illinois, on December 19, 1989. Here in its entirety, when he was at the forefront, is Arkansas' Floyd Jones of Mariana and Lee County, with his cousin Moody Jones of Earl in Crittenden County with On the Road Again.
Arkansas, your Floyd Jones of Mariana with Moody Jones of Earl with On the Road Again from 1953. It's another song of Arkansas from Little Rock. I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merks. Arkansas since 1998. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Green Forest. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Today's program was produced by Matthew inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Thanks for being with us. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Don't forget, Election Day is tomorrow. You can early vote today or go vote tomorrow. Until then, be well, and thanks for joining us here at Ozarks at Large. We'll see you tomorrow.